Thank you so much for last week making Susan Rhodes, uh, uh, Mother Susan Rhodes, feel welcome as she came to be our guest preacher last week. Uh, you guys are so gracious to our to preachers that come in and share with us. And uh, uh, Susan was, of course, the mission pastor for uh, our, our mission down in Lake Placid, which eventually became a parish of the diocese, New Life Anglican, Anglican Church. And so we're so thankful that uh, we've got a rich host of preachers and, and those to share the Word of God with us. So thank you for that. Uh, I missed all of you. It's good to be back this week, and it's good to be able to share the Word of God with you. Let me remind you, before I left two weeks ago, we talked about that we're in this middle section of uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, this center section, which is about 37% of your, if you like statistics, 37% of the Gospel of Luke is made up of this middle portion between Luke 9 and Luke 19, where Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's moving towards Jerusalem and towards the cross, of course, but he's, in, he's on the way, and he travels through lots of different areas, Samaria, Perea, through parts of Judea, and he is moving on towards Jerusalem, ever with the cross in front of him. He has set his face towards the cross. Now, we've talked about the fact in the last few weeks that these are tough discipleship passages. These are not easy passages. These are passages that, re- that remind us that Jesus' calling is high. The bar is high for discipleship. And he continues to raise that bar as he moves through this period. But keep in mind that this is not a God who stands outside of time and space and calls us to make sacrifices. This is a God who has come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, he moves towards the cross, and he preaches the way to follow him, the way of discipleship. But even with all that said, it is tough to face this passage this morning, isn't it? Because Jesus says there will be a relational challenge to being his disciple. He also says there is a sacrifice challenge, which we'll get to in a minute. But first of all, he calls us to this relational challenge. The relational challenge is simply that we must make him the supreme love of our lives, that we are to love him so devotedly, so devoutly, that in comparison, our love for God to the love for even our most intimate human relationships, our family, will be hatred, a stark contrast to, to loving God. We cannot, unless we can hate our father and our mother, our brothers and sisters, our wives, our children, we cannot meet his disciple. What a huge high bar that Jesus lifts up for us. Now, what Jesus is saying here is about comparison. It's not that we're to hate in the sense of hating to despise. It's not like Jesus saying, if you already hate your wife and the rest of your family, you're way ahead in discipleship, you know. Of course, that's not Jesus' words here. That would be contrary to everything else Jesus says, right? I mean, he says to love our neighbor, love one another, even to love our enemies. We're to honor our father and mother. We're to honor the marriage relationship. Um, Our families are to be... uh, key to how we minister in the world, and yet we are, by comparison, to love God more, to make Him the center 
of our affection and our sacrifice and chiefly our obedience. Matthew's gospel softens the Instead, he uses the word uh, of the Greek. He says, whoever, Jesus says, whoever loves Father and Mother more than me is not worthy of me. He makes the comparison of the Jesus loses gospel after the Luke in the position to be exact. I think he wants to support me here because it so strongly demonstrates how much greater our allegiance must be to God, even over all the other relationships in our lives. It's a high bar, it's a huge calling. You know the Old Testament passage where it says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Well, that's a that's a comparison. Obviously, Jacob was favored over Esau, but the comparison is really is actually one of degrees. Not that God hated Esau, but that he loved Jacob more. But by saying it, it draws out how important it take passage that I think it really challenges us to think about what it will mean to follow Jesus. I, 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 over and over again, I'm confronted with this, this idea that to be a follower of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, is to be challenged by every preconceived notion we have about our politics, about our loyalties, about what is right, what is good, what is fair. I mean, think of more really believers. And the passage that let me read to you a little bit ago. Here's this believer receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul. What is Paul saying? Paul says that before the mysticist, by the way, was his bond slave and ran away from the context of context here. He, Paul says, before the mysticist was of no use to you. I'm thinking Clement's going, nah, I disagree, Paul. He was quite helpful to me as he was here before he ran away. Paul says, no, in the kingdom of God, he was of no use to me. But now he is of great value, not only to you, but also to me. And so Paul says, despite everything that's wrong, and what might seem right and wrong to you, what might be just, Paul says, I ask you to receive a mistress back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. To be a follower of Jesus is to challenge everything, every preconceived notion. Every attitude and outlook, and it's all up for reconsideration. If our supreme love is the Lord Jesus Christ, we're to love nothing else above Jesus. Sacrifice equals love. This is the biblical understanding. What we sacrifice for, what we love. That's why we so easily lay down our, our bodies and our lives to the Lord and our children. Love them, we care for them, we do anything for them. That's a demonstration of tangible love, not just about affection, but action. But to love God beyond just the sacrifice is obedience. To trust God that if God is calling me to love him more than I love Joey, or Jacob, Charlie, or Samantha, or my brothers, or my sisters, is because he knows what's best for me, and I have to allow that challenge to sink into my heart and mind. But I get to think about what would, what, would that, what would that look like, practically speaking? What would it look like to, to love uh, my family above God? I'll go from the really obvious to the less obvious, perhaps. I mean, I think you'd all agree that you love your family more than you love God if you would be willing to perjure yourself 
If you were to lie to get your family out of, of trouble through the law, that would be a pretty obvious way to love you. You're putting your family over abuse to God. You're not breaking the law for you. In fact, you're doing what you can to undermine you. We probably all agree with that. But loving my family over the Lord might also look like sparing my family the consequences of their actions. Even though we can see that God wants to use those consequences to shape and mold their heart. Now this one we can relate to, right? It's a little harder to, it's not as obvious, but we can relate to it. There are times where you as a parent particularly can intercede. Boy, I'm so glad I'm not doing youth ministry anymore. <laughs> In this day and time to, to a, attempt to discipline a, a teenager, boy, you are likely to receive the wrath of parents in a way that I couldn't even imagine back in the, uh, <clears throat> the 90s. But, but now there is this sense of, boy, my child, I'm going to do everything I can to keep my child out of trouble, even if I know as a Christian that God wants to use that circumstance to teach them a lesson. This could apply to other people in our lives as well, and, and it definitely does. But that would, would be, that's what it would look like to love family above God. Could also be probably the, the the least obvious, but simply to to lovingly do what your family wants when you know God has called you to do something different. To know that God has called you to serve in some form of ministry, and yet to say, you know what, my family is more important. I'm not going to do that, and to disobey the voice of God who's calling you to do something out of love for family. I, like you, I'm sure, have, have, have left home to go do something and some ministry, something I know God had called me to with crying children and an upset spouse at home saying, why can't you just stay home and be with us today? Why do you have to go do that? That's the, that's the subtle way that, that we have to continually be challenged by Jesus' words. Is our supreme love and loyalty to our families or is it to the Lord? Now, the reality is that oftentimes the Lord is not asking us to love our families less, but more. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say that probably most of us need to love and sacrifice for our families in even greater ways than we do. We are such self-centered creatures. This became apparent to me with my little, little son dared to get in front of me and the Pittsburgh Steelers one day on the TV, and I yelled at him. And I thought, man, I need to love my son more than my football team. Caused me to really change my outlook on that perspective. But, but oftentimes in life, there will be challenges where maybe in obvious ways or not so obvious ways, our family... Will, will ask us to love them more than we love God and, and practically refuse to obey God out of a need for our family, whatever that is. If I truly love my dad more than I love the Lord, I would live in Carrollton, Georgia right now because that's where he would love for me to live and reminds me quite often. But I don't live in Carrollton, Georgia I live in Gainesville, Florida, because that's where God has called me to live. 
Beyond the relational challenge that Jesus puts out, as hard as that is, he reminds us again of the sacrificial challenge that it is. To, to, to follow Christ is not simply just to put his love for him above all other relationships, but also to be willing to, to, to offer up my whole self, my, my desires, my wishes, my, my dreams, my plans for the future to the Lord, to, to say, Lord, this is my plan, but... I give my life to you to do. Now, Jesus demonstrates this powerfully. And you've, again, you've got to be reminded, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to, very, to lay his very life down. And here he calls us to be willing to bear our cross, to die to ourselves and whatever that may look like. And that will look like a thousand different things to a thousand different followers of Christ. But there is that need to lay down that thing that, that we think is our life that he calls us to be willing to give up. And the reality is, Jesus says this in parallel passages, to lose one's life is to gain it. You know, what does it mean to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? But by giving ourselves over to Christ, we in fact gain everything back. You see, it's not like Jesus calls us to renounce our relationships and even our own lives and then to simply just to, just to walk away like St. Francis. Maybe in some ways that seems like it'd be easier. Just tell me what you want me to walk away from and I'll do it, Jesus. But instead, what he does is he, he calls us to surrender, to renounce those things, but then to continue to be stewards of them. He wraps it up in verse 33. If anyone, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. But we don't just simply walk away. We hold it loosely. We steward our lives and all that he's blessed us with, all the relationships of our lives, especially our family. And, and yet we hold it loosely, asking the Lord to show us how to steward and how to hold it in such a way that it's not supreme, but he alone is supreme in our lives. To draw this out, Jesus then has two examples that he brings forward. The first one is a building example. Jesus talks about a builder who, who builds a building or a tower, and he, but first of all, he sits down and he considers whether or not he has enough resources and time and finances to actually accomplish this building. I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, across from, from Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, there was this, uh, this high-rise that went up, remember? And they poured the concrete floors, and it was all there, and it just sat there unfinished for years. What an utter embarrassment. I mean, talk about a prime place to let your failure be shown. Here was this half-finished building that I have no idea who owned it, because I'm sure they didn't want anybody to know they owned it because they were embarrassed that they couldn't complete it. Jesus is saying, count the cost. Jesus is saying, the bar is high. I don't just want a part of you. I want your complete allegiance. This is what we say in our baptismal vow, that we renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are giving all to the Lord. But then the second analogy is a little different. If you caught the nuance, I know that I've caught it as well before, but it's, it's not the same idea of sort of a, sort of a, a value neutral, you know, you either build or you don't build. Jesus says, the other scenario is, imagine a, a king 
who's facing an opposing king with an army who's about to attack him. And the king is given this choice. Do I take my army of 10,000 and do I go out and meet the challenge of this army of 20,000? Or do I count the cost and rather consider making a peace offering unto the opposing king? Now, it's interesting to me here because I think that Jesus is drawing out not simply the idea of counting the cost. Do I want to be a disciple follower of Jesus or not? But, but recognizes that, that, that there is, it's not neutral here. There's an opposing army that is coming upon you. And the choice is either to fight or to surrender to negotiate peace. You see... We have to consider as high and as challenging as the, the bar of discipleship that Jesus calls us to, we have to consider what's the cost of refusing. The king of the universe has entered our world through the person of Jesus Christ to offer hope and redemption to our broken lives. See, the reality is we all know countless people, and sometimes in our own lives, there have been times where we've, we've, we've loved other things above our family to their own destruction. And we've definitely loved other things even to our own lives. We've sacrificed ourselves to far less gods than the God of the universe, the God of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, who comes into our life and says, I offer myself for your redemption. I offer you this love. Will you refuse to trust me with all that you are, with your relationships and your life? You see, I don't, I don't think it's by coincidence that the very first verse in this passage, Jesus says that we're told that the, Luke gives us this description that there are all these masses of people that are coming out. There's a large crowd of people that is coming to hear Jesus. And it is in this context that Jesus gives us this really hard discipleship challenge. You see, a few years ago there was a series out, a, a Bible study series for youth, and it was called Not a Fan. And basically the point of the whole series was that Jesus isn't looking for fans, He's looking for followers. A fan sits in the stand, and when you win, they cheer you, and when you, lo they, you lose, they walk away. But a follower, a follower is with you when it's hard, when you can't see the path clearly, and when the challenge seems as if it's too great, the follower continues to be committed. Jesus says, what would it mean to resist the Lord who's come to offer all he has for you? To resist and say, no, my family is supreme. My wife, my children, my parents. You see, the reality is that, that no human relationship can bear being the center of our universe. Parents die and leave us. Spouses can't hold up being your world. Boyfriends and girlfriends and, and, and brothers and sisters and even our own children. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I had to think about this passage. We were in Tallahassee Friday and Saturday. I'm holding this little 12-pound little, little 
idol here, you know, and I'm looking at Cooper and I'm thinking about, you know, the, you know, if you love family more than me, you're not worthy of me. And, but the reality is that no one humanly can be the center of our world. Only the true God who's given all for us, who loves us agape, can be the center of our lives. But to lose our lives, to gain him, is in fact to gain the world. But we will be challenged. So what does it look like to live this out? Well, it it seems to me that, that Deuteronomy 30 really gives us a lot to think about. Deuteronomy 30 says, verse 19, God has laid out before us life and death, good and evil. It's our choice. Will we obey the voice of the Lord? You see, oftentimes we're called to be devoutly following and serving our families, and, and, and we're not every day called to lay down our lives. But what we are called to do is to hear the voice of God and to be ready to make certain that He is the supreme love of our lives when those times come. So to me, it seems clear that, that what we need to do if we're going to stop being fans of God and instead be followers of God is to cultivate an ability to hear the voice of God. How do we do that? I think Psalm 1 gives us some really helpful things. Blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, what is the opposite of that? It's to walk in the counsel of the righteous. We can justify anything to ourselves anything i'm a priest i've heard it we can justify anything but when we have a council of godly men and women that we can divulge and we're willing to divulge ourselves to the lord speaks into our lives and how many times have i said something to those that are in my covenant group and they've gone uh, I don't think that's from the Lord, Alex. You might need to take that back to prayer. We're going to hear the voice of God. We're going to seek the counsel of the wise. Secondly, Psalm 1 tells us that the righteous meditate upon the word of God night and day. We have to be in the Lord's word. We have to be studying it. We have to be finding ways of meditating upon God's word because it speaks truth and life. It, it, Paul says it cuts between the, the very marrow of our bones. It, it gets down into the very depth of who we are. You know, this, this morning I was praying and I was up reading scripture and uh, I came across, I was, you know, I, like you, I'm praying and interceding for the Bahamas, this terrible devastation that's going on there and, and, and how the poor have been displaced. And, you know, you can say, well, they shouldn't have built there or whatever. But the reality is they're there and they're in this crisis. And, and the, the challenge to the church is, will we respond to it? And so guess what my proverb was? Proverb twenty-one, thirteen. Those who refuse to hear the cry of the poor will find themselves not heard when they pray. See, the Word of God speaks into us in ways that challenges when we can justify things in our own minds The word of God pierces that and reminds us that the way of the Lord will always challenge our preconceived notions. So we we seek the counsel of the wise. We seek to meditate on the word of God. And thirdly, 
We follow the money. You know, those police shows, cop shows, they always say, well, follow the money trail. See where the crime occurred. Follow the money. What does Jesus say? Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Where do we spend our money? What's valuable to us? What's our checking? I used to say checkbook. Nobody has a checkbook anymore. Your checking account, your online balance. Look at where your money goes. Jesus says that's where your heart is. This morning, friends, we are, we are confronted again with the challenge of Jesus Christ. The one who laid down his life for us. To offer us life and life abundantly. Do we, do we dare to hold back? Or do we trust in him? To lose one's life is to gain life. What does it mean to gain the whole world and to lose our soul? I trust the Lord to guide and direct us as he calls us out of fanship, out of fanville, to fellowship. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.